I greet you in the name of the Lord and welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1 and 2. This is God's word. When men began to multiply on the, on the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men or man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come before you in the name of your Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that this morning as your word goes forth, that you would divinely help us to see how you are preserving your people. Even in the midst of darkness that is engulfing the land. How you are saving your people from judgment Redeeming them from your wrath. And preserving them, Lord, until that final judgment day. We pray, God, that you would give to us listening ears, understanding minds and hearts that believe. And I decrease, Lord, that you may increase for your glory and for your praise. We pray. Amen. We are continuing our study in the book of Genesis, and we we all should praise God for our elders who Lord's Day after Lord's Day faithfully bring to us God's word. Uh, I praise God for Pastor John and for Pastor Isaiah, who did a wonderful job expounding and exegeting the fourth and fifth chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, and brothers and sisters, let us continue to pray for our elders. Let us continue to pray that the Lord God uh, raises them up, strengthens them in knowledge and in grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, continues to grow them and use them for his glory and for the building up of his church. Brothers and sisters, please do continue to pray for all of your elders. And now <clears throat> we come to the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis. Brothers and sisters, we come to the first few passages of the chapter of chapter six, which are admittedly some of the, the most difficult passages to interpret and also some of the most debated passages in all of the book of Genesis here just in these first few verses. Just as I will not be giving you any points this morning, I will also not be expounding upon verses one and two this morning either. Not because these verses are too difficult for us to expound or too difficult for us to comprehend. But because we must take a step back. In order for us to go forward in understanding these passages, which we will consider next week. It is vital that we understand where we have been and where God in his word is taking us. In the third chapter of the book of Genesis, we learned that we learned of man's great fall. Men fell from the very heights of the glory of Eden, the garden temple, to the very depths of depravity and to the cursed creation as Adam willingly broke 
covenant with God in his disobedience. In the midst of judgment, the Lord God made a promise of grace and redemption that we would be accomplished through the seed of the woman. It was known as the pro-evangelion or the first gospel. The Lord said in Genesis 3.16, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. When Adam fell, the Lord God promised that there would come from the woman, not a seed, but the champion seed who would destroy the work of the devil. This conquering seed would cover the sin of God's people. This champion seed would, would pass under the flaming sword that guarded the way to the tree of life. And he would gain access to the tree of life. He would achieve the glory that Adam failed to achieve and bring with him many sons to that glory. He is the skull crushing seed of the woman. He is the, the skull crusher of the serpent. He is our federal head. He is the federal head of a people whom he has for love before the foundation of the world or before the world was. We know that he is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord God made a promise of the covenant of grace that would would come and be accomplished in the person and work redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet in that very same verse of Genesis chapter three. There was also another true reality. That would develop as revelation progressed. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Lord God made a promise that there would be war. The Lord God made a promise that there would be war or opposition, enmity between the seed of the woman. That is the righteous seed of God and the seed of the serpent. That is the unrighteous rebels against God. And this promise of God begins to, to be unveiled in the birth of the two seeds of Adam. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel, and as was so Perfectly displayed for us by Pastor Isaiah, the two seeds begin to reveal themselves. That this promise of God begins to, to be unveiled or revealed in these two seeds, in their lineages, or and their lineages, in the offerings that they present to the Lord. Are you with me? J just as in a play, the antagonist and the protagonist are revealed, so also the seed of the righteous is revealed when Abel in faith, offers up to God that which God commanded while the, the seed of the serpent is revealed. When Cain, in disobedience, offers to God that which he has not commanded, Cain reveals in his, his disobedience, in offering that which God has not commanded, he reveals just how rapidly man's heart, man's mind, and man's will have been corrupted by sin. And, and he goes a step further, not just in, in disobediently offering to God what God has not commanded, but, but takes his, his depravity 
to the next level. When after his, his offering is rejected by God, he calls his brother Abel out to the field. And what does he do? He murders the righteous seed in a jealous fit of rage. Brothers and sisters, darkness has truly fallen over the land. Violence has so filled the heart of mankind that he is, he is willing to destroy another image bearer of God. Why? Again, as Pastor Isaiah said, in attempts to kill God himself. He can kill God, so he will kill the image bearers of God. When he is confronted by God for his actions, he is he's more concerned with the consequences of his sin than the actual act of sin. And it's 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 offense against God. He is therefore marked by God, sent away by God, sent away from the presence of the Lord east of Eden. Thus, the war of the two seeds has begun. Between chapter three and chapter six of the book of Genesis, there there is a. A, listen to this, a fundamentally negative movement, as one theologian says. One theologian describes this negative movement as a movement of escalation of evil, a movement of, of escalating evil, men who, who fell into sin. And let me just say this, man did not accidentally fall. We, when we say the fall of man, it almost sounds as if he accidentally fell. Man intentionally falls into sin. Man willingly chose to rebel against God. And has become increasingly, after this fall, after this disobedience, becomes increasingly wicked. What do we see in the lives of Cain and Abel? We are beginning to see the theme of the lineage of the two seeds. One seed who is of the wicked, unrighteous line of the serpent. And the other, who was of the righteous line of the woman. And yet, when we come to this fourth chapter, we see that wickedness and evil, they, they are intensifying. It begins with Adam and his rebellion. The one created righteous Adam. And from Adam, the escalation of evil is intensified. At the, at the slaying of his brother Abel, Cain's slaying of his brother Abel. And it is important that we take careful notice of this negative movement as we approach the sixth chapter. And I'm sure you have a number of questions about the sixth chapter. Who are the sons of God? Who are these daughters of, of men? Who are the Nephilim? Brothers and sisters, don't miss the forest through the trees. There is something happening here. There is something developing here. And scripture is not intending for you to lose focus of what's happening so that you can focus on who are these sons of God and who are the Nephilim. Don't lose focus. Darkness is rapidly covering the land. What's the next, the next step in this increasing darkness? The scriptures begin to trace for us the lineage and trajectory of the wickedness or the wicked seed of the serpent. Who are they? What have they become? What happens of Cain? Cain becomes a wanderer. He's a nomad who is marked by God that whoever should find him should not harm him. Or God declares, remember that, God declares that his vengeance will be upon them sevenfold. And in his wanderings, Cain settles. 
And Cain builds a city. Cain becomes a city builder and names the city that he builds after his son, Enoch. You've heard that name before, haven't you? This is not the Sethite Enoch. This is the Cainite Enoch who this city is named after. And we must note this. Cities in and of themselves are not evil. Building cities in and of themselves is not evil. The holy Jerusalem that comes down from heaven is a city, brothers and sisters. But this city of Enoch is no holy Jerusalem. The city of Enoch was built to celebrate man's autonomy. The city of Enoch was built to celebrate man's might and strength. The city of Enoch was built to boast of man's achievements. It is a city built on arrogance. A city built on the arrogance of man. A city built on man's sole reliance upon himself. It is a city that is in tribute to man's idolatrous impulses. And this city will find its culmination in the building of Babel in the 11th chapter. Because Babel is the height of what city, the city of Enoch began to be. A city of wickedness built upon the arrogance of man. And that is why it's destroyed. The city of Enoch, like Babel, is a city to the glory and praise of man. Not a city to the glory and praise of God. Once again, we are shown just how wicked the wickedness of man's heart has so escalated. And it is moving toward, towards an impending judgment. Judgment is on the horizon. Judgment is looming upon the wickedness of man. Man and his wickedness will not strive forever. As the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis continues to trace the seed of the serpent, we see that they, they are murderers like Cain. They build kingdoms to their own praise. They are forgers of instruments of warfare. And those instruments of warfare are used as they wield their sword as tyrants over the land. We find this displayed for us in Lamech, who is the seventh in the lineage of Cain. He proclaims, or as was so insightfully taught to us, he sings of his act of violence upon a man who has wounded him. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 23 and 24. Ada and Zila, hear my voice, Lamech says. You wives of Lamech. How many? Wives, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. He boasts of his strength. He boasts of his might to his two wives. He's a polygamist whose power is, is, is his God. The sword is his God. And he holds his God in his hands as he boasts of his act of violence to his wives. Cain at least feared God. But Lamech, he has no such fear of God. He boasts of his wickedness in his sword song. And it is in homage to the strength of his sword, he fancies himself to be a God. These are the Cainites. These are the seeds of the serpent. The Lord God, through the pen of Moses, has traced for us the wicked genealogy 
of the seed of the serpent in the fourth chapter. What then do we have in the fifth chapter? Well, if the fourth chapter was a genealogy of the wicked seed of the serpent, then the fifth chapter is a genealogy of the righteous seed of the woman. Moses, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has traced for us who they are, what they do, how they live. And now Moses, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will be led into the fifth chapter to show us the seed of the woman, who they are, what they do and how they live. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 25, Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring or seed. Instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Eve proclaims that God has given her another offspring, seed. It is literally translated seed. One who would fill the place of Abel in the godly line of the righteous. Thus, the tracing of the godly line of the skull-crushing seed of the woman becomes displayed or revealed for us in the fifth chapter. In contrast to the Cainites, who are known as tyrannical murderers that built kingdoms to their own glory, the Sethites, they are not city builders. They are those who call upon the name of the Lord. They are those who walk with God by faith. They're not city builders. They are worshipers of God. And and who are these Sethite worshipers of God? When you read the fifth chapter and the fourth chapter, It is interesting that in the fourth chapter, we are given names of the seeds of the serpent, the Canaanites. And don't they bear a striking resemblance to the names of the righteous seeds of the woman, the Sethites? After Seth, we see that Seth's first son, or not first son, but Seth's son in the righteous line is named Enosh. While Cain's son is named Enoch. What is God doing through Moses? God is once again drawing our attention to this. Compare and contrast. They sound similar, but they are vastly different. They sound identical, but they are vastly different. And they are are going in two vastly different directions. Just as we have seen the contrast between Cain and Abel, we are now given contrast between Enoch and Enosh, Irad and Kenan. Mehujael and Mahalalel, until we come to the seventh, contrast, compare, compare, contrast, until we come to the seventh on each side. Lamech is the seventh in the line of Cana of the Canaanites, while Enoch is the seventh in the line of the Sethites. What of Lamech, the seventh in the line of Cain? Of Cain? He's a murderer. He's a polygamist. He's a tyrant whose hatred for God is so great that that he boasts a great boast, saying again, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech is seventy-sevenfold. The curse upon those who attempted to strike Cain was going to be vengeance from God sevenfold. Anyone dare lay a hand on Cain? Lamech is multiplying that vengeance by eleven. He's saying, if it's seven for Cain, it's 77 for me. But brothers, it is Lamech's proclamation, not God's proclamation. Lamech proclaims this this vengeance as, as if he himself were God, as if he had the right and the power to proclaim it himself. 
he thinks he is a god. He is the seventh in the line of Cain. Well, the prophet Enoch. The seventh in the line of the godly line of Seth. He does not boast that he is a god. He walks by faith with God. How do we know that the prophet Enoch walked by faith? Just as Pastor John described for us last week, the book of Hebrew comments on Enoch's faith in God. Listen, brothers and sisters, which translated or resulted in a translation into glory. Enoch walked by faith with God. Faith in what? Faith in his faith. Faith in the promised seed who would come and destroy the works of the serpent. He walks by faith with God. And because he walks by faith and trust in that seed, he is translated into glory. But, but that's not just it. It's not just Enoch's walk by faith that, that gets him translated into glory. The prophet Enoch walked with God. Walking with God is the highest goal in life. Walking with God and promoting God's name. Not our name. Walking with God and promoting the glory of God. Not the glory of a city that is perishing. But the glory of God. To ultimately to, to result in, in, in communion with God. That is the chief aim of man, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The prophet Enoch preached the gospel. The prophet Enoch preached of a coming judgment upon the wicked. How do we know that Enoch preached the gospel? How do we know that Enoch preached of coming judgment? Why do I keep calling him the prophet? Because God calls him a prophet. Because God said he preached of coming judgment, Jude 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. If he prophesied, what does that make him? A prophet? Saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all. And to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness. That they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Brothers and sisters. As evil intensified. As, as e- evil escalated. Enoch was used by God to prophesy. In that day of the coming judgment of to the wicked. He was used by God to call men to, to place their faith. In the seed, as he placed his faith in the seed and to turn from their sin, to escape the wrath of God that was looming on the horizon. Imagine Enoch preaching the gospel to his tyrannical cousin Lamech. Turn from your sins, Lamech. Judgment is at your doorstep, Lamech. The prophet Enoch then becomes an illustrated sermon. Now, here's here's the meaning of his seventh. Here's the meaning of him being the seventh in the line of the Sethites. And here's translation. Because Enoch becomes an illustrated sermon. You know what an illustrated sermon is? It is a visual sermon. Not so much one with words, but one with, with, with visual action. 
Enoch becomes a, a, an illustrated sermon as he is translated into glory. Brothers and sisters, not translated in secret, but before the very eyes of the righteous, so that he might become for the righteous a visible sign of what is promised to those who place their faith in that seed. What would your response be? Our response, if this gospel is being preached and what is promised is uh, redemption from judgment. And then before your very eyes, you are translated into glory. By faith, Enoch does not taste death, but rather he is translated into glory. He is the seventh. He has walked with God by faith. He, just as Adam was to work six days and then rest on the seventh, and the seventh was to be a preview of what was promised to him, what was laid up for him if he obeyed that Sabbath rest. Enoch walks with God. And there are six generations that are, that are watching Enoch as he walks with God. And then the seventh, Enoch, is translated into that glory, that promised rest, that is promised and laid up for those who place their faith in God. It is God reminding the people, I will do what I have said I will do. Enoch, by faith, walks with God and experiences the highest communion with God in his translation into glory. Brothers and sisters, was it because Enoch was so wonderfully perfect? No. Your head should be swiveling like a bobblehead. No, no, absolutely not. He was a sinner. He was a sinner in need of grace. He was a sinner saved by faith in the seed. Remember Adam. Adam's estate was to, to move from dominion to dominion. To, to move from glory that he was created in to eternal glory that was promised before him. His estate was to, to be escalated, Adam was. Adam was called to Enoch's translation. What Enoch experiences is what Adam was to achieve. If he walked obediently before God, if he obediently put the serpent to death, if he obediently spoke God's word against the serpent, if he obediently kept the commands and kept the covenant of works, he would have experienced this translation. But Adam broke covenant with God. He failed to obey God. He fell short of the glory of God. There was no good that man could do to thereafter earn the reward of escalation for all men were corrupted by sin. Until the dissension of the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes to the very earth that he created, which was now marred by sin and corruption he comes as the second Adam, the better Adam. He proclaims the kingdom of God. He calls men to repent in order to escape the judgment of God. Listen closely now. And suffers as he perfectly walks with God in obedience to the commands of God. He lays down his life as a substitute for those who he came to represent. And he suffers unto glory. 
his estate is escalated and advanced as he fulfills the covenant of redemption. Enoch is situated between the disobedient Adam and the obedient Adam. Why? Because Enoch is a type of Christ. Enoch, in his preaching, in his walking, and in his translation, was pointing to Christ. Who would preach faithfully, who would walk obediently. And because of that, and because of faith, obviously Enoch, would be translated into glory. And he was used by God to be an illustrated sermon before the very eyes of the godly Sethites. He, before the very eyes of Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Methuselah, Lamech, and even Noah, was used as a means to point to Christ and what Christ would accomplish for all those who place their faith in him will be redeemed, rescued from judgment, and translated into the highest communion with God. Glory. Nehemiah Cox says concerning the believers who witnessed Enoch's translation, this greatly tended to encourage their faith. That should be encouraging, shouldn't it? To watch the one who has faithfully walked and preached the gospel translated into glory. What kind of encouragement should that bring? To encourage their faith and hope in the expectation of a glorious state for soul and body to be enjoyed in a blessed immortality and eternal life hereafter. For 300 years, the church of God enjoyed the ministry of Enoch. 300 years, the seven patriarchs were alive to witness the translation, this translation into glory, that they might both be comforted because of evil that is surrounding them and engulfing them, encouraged, and also instructed by it. Through the prophet Enoch's translation, it is one once proclaimed that where communion with God has been restored, their deliverance from death is bound to follow. One theologian notes, it is interesting when you consider Abel. Abel's blood is shed on the ground. It is spilled on the ground. It re he returns to the dust from which he was taken, slain by Cain. When Enoch rises, he rises, as it were, above the blood-soaked ground that is crying out for vengeance. And he is a sign that the Lord will indeed avenge and bring a people to be with himself. Wow. Enoch escapes the judgment by water that is looming over the creation. And it is a reminder that judgment will not sweep away the righteous. Judgment will not sweep away the righteous. Those who are in Christ will not perish under the wrath of God's judgment on the last day. Just as those who believed in the skull-crushing seed of the woman were not destroyed by the floodwaters of judgment that were looming in Noah's day. Enoch is translated into glory while the righteous line of Seth remained in this fallen world. Think about that.
He is translated into glory while the righteous remain and while darkness and the pace of evil and the pace of wickedness increases every single moment. Would you need some kind of glimmer of hope in the midst of darkness that is closing in? Yes, you would. And God provides that for them as Enoch is taken up before their very eyes. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Brothers and sisters, we believe that the world that we are living in now is the most wicked that it has ever been. But the scriptures testify to the opposite. The scriptures testify that the wickedness on the world was once so vile on the world that once was, was once so vile that it would be wiped away by the judgment of God. Every thought of the heart was only evil continually. Is that to say that that we do not live in a sin-sick, wicked world today? No, it's not to say that. But it is to say that if we think that this is the worst time in history, God testifies to the contrary. It caused the Sethite Lemek to lament with hope at the birth of his son Noah. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 28. When Lemek had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord God has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. We find in the words of Lemek, A profound sense of burdensome, burdensomeness of the curse of sin. He is weary. He is tired. He is longing for rest. He is longing. My wife sometimes says, I just want to go to heaven. You ain't going to heaven. Uh, I say playfully. Lamech is longing for rest. We are all longing for rest. We are all longing from rest from this sin sick world. We are all longing from rest from trials and tribulation. And, and, and Lemek was no different. He was longing for a rest, longing for relief. And imagine. Not even the righteous line of the Sethites. Not even the righteous who lived in the world were unable to force back the evil that was closing in around them. Grahada's boss says, while the power of redemption remained stationary, the power of sin waxed strong and became ready to attack the good that still existed. We're approaching the sixth chapter, but something is happening. The the evil is encroaching upon the, 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 the righteous. The righteous are being endangered. Of being wiped out. Lemech, who has seen his grandfather's translation into glory and rest, prophesies in hope and in severe distress that this one Noah, Noah would bring God's people the rest that his grandfather Enoch entered into. Noah will be the one. Lemech 
prematurely believes that Noah would be the rest giver. So much so that he names his son rest. So much so that he names his son comfort or repose, rest. Lemek is preaching what was promised in the garden at the fall of man. That there would come one who would crush the head of the serpent and who would bring rest. Lemek is preaching what he saw in the translation of his grandfather who entered into that rest of glory. And now Lemek is walking by faith, hoping beyond all hope, as it were, that Noah is that rest giver. But Noah, Noah would bring rest, but a different kind of repose, a different kind of rest. Noah would be used by God to bring a rest to the rampant evil of humanity through the judgment waters of God. Noah would be used to preserve the righteous seed of the woman. And he will be preserved from the judgment waters of God as the righteous seed is born through him. So then, as we approach the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis, what do we see? Who are these? Are these angels? Who are these daughters of women? Who are these giants? Don't miss the point. The point is this. We are seeing a divine preservation of the righteous, the believing seed of God. While God also at the same time allows wickedness to grow, allows evil to intensify. This is what is happening. This is the stage that is being set. God withdraws his restraint, his divine restraint upon man's evil deeds. And he allows wickedness to intensify. This is the result when man does what is right in his own eyes. When man does what is right in his own eyes, evil waxes worse and worse. And guess what? God is allowing it to take place. God is allowing it to take place. Evil is escalating. The trajectory is moving rapidly toward cosmic, a cosmic crisis. Universal judgment. Universal judgment wherein the wicked will be judged you're going to hear this word a lot in a deluge of water. An absolute covering deluge of water while the righteous will be preserved from judgment waters and redeemed by God. This is this is the, the stage that's being set. There's a development of two cities. This is what we're seeing. There's a development of, of or uncovering, if you will, of two kingdoms, two lines, two seeds that will eternally be divided. And even after the, the flood, we will see in the sons of Noah that, that that unrighteous and righteous line continues. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Brothers and sisters, it is vital that we take this understanding of the two seeds, two kingdoms with us as we journey on into chapter 6. Our tendency that we must warn against is to treat these chapters and even these books as if they are independent one of another. And dear ones, that would be a grave mistake. Something is building. Something is escalating. The righteous seed of the woman is being threatened by the escalation of evil. 
and we will see that threat take place, uh, take its, its next step in the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis. And brothers and sisters, even though evil was escalating in that day, the world is never without a remnant of righteousness. The world is, is never without as long as God endures and as long as God allows this world to continue, there is never a time where there is not salt in the land. There is never a time in this wicked world where there is not one glimmer of light. Even as encroaching darkness, engulfing darkness engulfs the land. The Lord raises up Noah in the midst of darkness to be, as the Apostle Peter describes and declares, a preacher of righteousness. A preacher of righteousness. He carries on the work of his grandfather Enoch. He carries on the work of those patriarchs who came before him. Warns of coming judgment, calls men to repent of their sins and to place their faith in the seed. And dear ones here today, Wickedness is increasing in this world. They're using issues that would have been taboo 20 years ago, maybe even 10, as the main plot for television shows now. I saw recently a little boy who's never met his father, a pilot for a television show, a little boy who's never met his father, who grows up as a homosexual little boy to meet his manly father who has to now deal with the fact that his son is gay. It's a comedy show. And we are supposed to accept it. One of the newest movies that is out recently. Is about a young man, a teenager. Who goes through high school. Hiding his homosexuality. Until finally coming out and becomes the most popular guy in school. Evil is waxing worse and worse. Abortion in this land, the murdering and slaying of babies is increasing in this land. The immorality, and not that our leadership has ever been moral, but the immorality of our leadership in this world is praised as we have a president who boasts of his sexual escapades in the past. While we were ready to impeach Bill Clinton 20 years ago for his immorality. This world is becoming increasingly evil. And yet, in the midst of darkness that is engulfing us. This world is not without a remnant. This world is not absent of salt. This, this world is not absent of light. In the midst of darkness. 
For we, the church, have been called by God in the midst of unrighteousness to call men to repent of their sins, to trust in Christ and to be saved from the judgment, not by water, but the judgment by fire that will soon come. Be salt in this life. Be light in this world. Call men to turn from their sins and to trust in Christ. And you will find yourself a part of that godly heritage, a part of that godly lineage of the Sethites who called men to repent, of the Enochs who called men to repent and to turn from God, from the judgment that is coming and to turn to God. You will find yourself in the lineage of Noah and, and John the Baptist and Peter and Paul and beyond. Your lineage runs deep in the history of this world. Brothers and sisters, we are the church. And there is a promise of glory that is laid up for us. That we could call men to repent and when we die, hallelujah, in that by and by, we will fly away just as Enoch did. Place your faith in Christ. Escape the coming judgment. There is a glory of rest that is laid up for the righteous. And there is judgment that is laid up for the wicked. Let us pray.